0: I'm Elaine Fuchs. I'm a professor at the Rockefeller University in New York City. I'm also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And today I'd like to tell you a little bit about tapping the potential of adult stem cells. Every tissue of our body has to replenish dying cells, dead cells, that through wear and tear are lost from our tissues. 50 to 70 billion cells die every day in our body, and they have to be replaced. How does that happen? Our body must repair its tissues as well when damaged. How does that happen? Every tissue of our body has reservoirs of stem cells for homeostasis and wound repair. So, it's the stem cells that replace these 50 to 70 billion diets billion cells that die every day in our body, and that also repair our wounds. Some tissues turn over rapidly and have many stem cells. Those are such as hematopoietic stem cells, which regenerate the red blood cells and immune cells, or skin stem cells, which regenerate the epidermis and the hair follicles in our sweat glands, or intestinal stem cells that rejuvenate the food-absorptive, Cells of our body. Other tissues have very little regenerative capacity. Our central and peripheral nervous system, for instance, pancreatic tissue, or cardiac tissue. So, what are the characteristics of tissue stem cells that exist in adult tissues? These cells have the capacity to divide to produce more stem cells. That's a process known as self renewal, and they produce a differentiated tissue, such as the epidermis, or the hair. And they do so long-term. These cells are relatively immature compared to their progeny, compared to the tissue cells. They're typically multipotent. They're able to produce a subset of cell lineages. Examples, hematopoietic stem cells can make the blood and immune cells. Skin stem cells can make the epidermis and hair. It's only the fertilized egg that has unlimited potential that can make all the cells of our body. Tissue stem cells tend to be more restricted in what they can do. And to understand why, we need to study the biology of adult tissue stem cells. So, my laboratory studies the skin and skin stem cells. And I've always thought that nature has clearly had a lot more fun and fancy in creating body surfaces than she has in creating any of the ugly organs that most scientists work on. My group works on the stem cells of the skin. So, where do adult skin stem cells come from? They begin in early embryonic development, shortly after gastrulation, when the... Embryo effectively turns inside out and begins to develop into the animal. The skin begins as a single layer of cells that are on the surface of the embryo. Those are the cells that are going to give rise to the stratified epidermis that you see here. They'll also generate the hair follicles, they'll also generate the corneal surface of our eye, the sweat glands, and the mammary glands. All of these cells come from this single layer of multipotent progenitor cells that are the origins of the stem cells of our adult skin. So, skin stem cells provide the nearly endless supply of cells that replenish the epidermis and the hairs of our body. Can we isolate them? Can we coax them to become hair, as well as epidermis? What value do they have in regenerative medicine? Back when I was a graduate student, I was working on bacteria. And I heard a lecture by Howard Green, who at the time was at MIT as a research scientist. And Howard had developed a method where he could take a piece of human skin and put the cells into culture, and be able to propagate them endlessly without losing their ability to make skin. I was just fascinated by his lecture. And I knew then that I wanted to become a stem cell biologist. So, here are examples, then, of the stem cells that are growing in culture. And you can see by the dark chromosomes that these cells are actively dividing. And they can be propagated, as I mentioned, endlessly. Below what you see is a three-dimensional, so-called organoid culture, or uh, a tissue, where we've reconstituted the epidermis, starting from scratch, using these cultured human epidermal stem cells. looks pretty good compared to normal human skin epidermis. So, Howard Green went on to develop this technology for the treatment of burn patients, where he could take a small piece of the patient's good skin propagate those cells in culture and make sheets, hundreds of sheets, of epidermal cells that then could be grafted on the patient's bad skin. So, the epidermal stem cells could be grown for months in a dish and forever when grafted onto a patient. This shows you an example of some of the grafted skin from one of these patients. The patients that Howard Green treated successfully with These cultured human epidermal stem cells from the patient covered up to 95% of the patient's burned skin, with only 5% of the patient having unburned skin. And from that, stem cells could be cultured. A remarkable advance. After a year, the skin epidermis still looked like the normal skin epidermis would. And it didn't show signs of cancer or deleterious effects that might give us an indication that all of that culturing is a bad thing for these human epidermal stem cells. Michaela De Luca and Graziana Pellegrini, who were then uh, uh, studying in Howard Green's laboratory and had started up their own labs in Italy, adapted the pioneering culturing procedures that Howard Green had performed in this case, to culture cornea, or corneal epithelial cells, from a patient's uh, stem cells of the cornea. So, in this case, the patient had an industrial accident where one of the eyes, the eye that you see here, was blinded. By taking stem cells from the healthy eye, culturing those cells, and producing a sheet of corneal epithelial cells, It was possible, then, to graft it onto the blind eye. And here is the result of the stem cell therapy, a restored corneal epithelium that effectively uh, restored the vision in this eye to this patient. So, let's take a look at uh, 10 years later after those uh, experiments with the cornea uh, were performed. Just in the last month, there was a very successful report of whole-body regenerative medicine from disease-corrected epidermal stem cells. And in this case, the patient, a 7-year-old boy, suffered from a genetic disorder known as junctional epidermolysis bullosa. This genetic disorder is due to recessive genetic mutations. They can be either in the laminin-5, an extracellular matrix protein that's important for the epidermis to adhere to the underlying dermis, or mutations in integrins alpha-6 or beta-4, which are the integrins in the epidermal stem cells that are necessary to adhere the epidermis to the underlying dermis. And this particular patient had a disorder or genetic lesion in the laminin 5 chain, and as a consequence, the epidermis did not adhere and uh, effectively sloughed off from the patient's body with the slightest of mechanical trauma. The patient was near death at the point at which Michaela De Luca, my colleague at... in Rome, uh, took on this task of working with German clinicians in order to be able to take a small sample of the patient's cells, junctional epidermolysis bullosa defective keratinocytes, use gene therapy to be able to put back the normal laminin chain and to be able to excise the genetic mutation of the patient, and effectively, at that point, then, generated healthy human epidermal stem cells that could be maintained and propagated uh, for generating sheets, of epidermis that were then grafted on to this patient. So, this gene therapy of epidermal stem cells required only a very few number of stem cells in order to be able to replenish or repopulate the entire epidermis of this patient using whole-body regenerative medicine from disease-corrected epidermal stem cells. And here is the boy today, basically able to uh, go out and play in a way that he was barely able to survive at the time of the therapy. So, even a year ago, scientists did not think or were concerned that it might not be possible to be able to produce normal, healthy, epidermal stem cells from Uh, gene editing of the mutation out of the stem cells. And it also was doubtful that whole-body regenerative medicine would be possible to correct the genetic basis of this disease, or to correct this genetic disease. The patient's other cells still harbor that gene defect, but the important aspect of this is... is that the patient... uh, Uh, the patient's skin epidermis is now corrected, and this boy may be able to at least uh, live uh, a relatively normal life. So, what are, then, the various different uh, associated therapies that have followed the culturing of epidermal stem cells that were first uh, performed in 1975. In... now we have the correction of third-degree burns with epidermal stem cells and the correction of junctional epidermolysis bullosa with epidermal stem cells that have been gene edited. In 1985, we had... Uh, corneal epithelial stem cells to correct blindness from burns and from chemicals. In 1992, Peterson and Bissell, uh, scientists at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories and also in uh, Denmark, were able to produce milk-producing glands from human mammary epithelial stem cells cultured in the laboratory. And these have been enormously helpful not only to study mammalian mammary biology, but also to study breast cancer. In 2013, Sato and Cleavers made the impressive advance to be able to produce organoid cultures from simple epithelia, from intestinal epithelia, lung epithelia, stomach and liver stem cells. These were, again, advances that took years for scientists to make, with, again, the realization that what's important is to understand enough about the biology of the stem cell to be able to know about their environment and basically recreate the environment that that stem cell normally has in its normal tissue and recreate that in a culture dish. It was determined early on by Howard Green and others for epidermal stem cells many years later it's now become possible to culture many different types of adult stem cells. And so here, by the use of the ability to culture, for instance, lung stem cells, it was also possible in, again, in just the last year, in the Netherlands, to be able to treat a patient with cystic fibrosis by gene editing many lung organoid cultures grown from the patient. and uh, and basically allow the patient to uh, to again uh, be able to um, breathe properly uh, and uh, and promise for the future. So <clears throat> where are we in two thousand and eighteen with our knowledge about the biology of tissue stem cells? Because it's the biology that is going to drive future advances in the clinics and also in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry. So, what we know is that stem cells of adult tissues typically reside in niches, in defined microenvironments. That's true for the hair follicle, for the intestine, and for the hematopoietic system, the three stem cells for which we know most about the stem cells and their niches. When does a tissue stem cell decide, am I going to make tissue, or am I going to be dormant or quiescent? It's the interactions between the stem cell and its microenvironment, or the niche stem cell interactions, that make that decision. When a stem cell is not making tissue and exists, for instance, in the skin, uh, it basically is receiving inhibitory signals from the microenvironment, telling it to stay cool be quiet, be dormant, not make tissue. But if a stem cell needs to make tissue, now there have to be interacting cues that are positive-acting cues that are now going to override those inhibitory cues. And at that point, those activated stem cells then go on to make short-lived progenitors, which then go on to produce the bulk of the tissue. And in the case of the skin, it would be, for instance, the epidermis or the hair follicle. How many and how often stem cells are active depends upon the needs of the particular tissue. So, we know a lot about the skin stem cells from my laboratory and other laboratories' research over the last uh, several decades now. And we know that the tissue stem cells reside at the interface between the epidermis and the dermis. But they're defined in their task, and also their program of gene expression, by their local niches. So, the epidermal stem cells that reside in the innermost layer of the epidermis are in a niche microenvironment that's very different from that of the hair follicle stem cells that are located at the very base of the uh, non-cycling portion of the hair follicle. that stem cell-niche interactions are what defines the stem cells in each of these niches... and tells the stem cells of the epidermis to make epidermis produce our barrier, whereas stem cells from the hair follicle to make hair. So, my laboratory has studied the hair follicle for a number of years now. It's really the perfect system to understand a basic biological problem. And that is how stem cells transition between quiescence and tissue regeneration. This is a problem that's faced by all the stem cells of our adult tissues. And we've learned a lot about the various different interactions that are necessary. We know that these red arrows are basically inter... niche cells that are sending out a signal, called BMP, that tell these stem cells, in purple, to be quiescent. We know that at the base of the stem cell niche, there are signals... new signals, activating signals, called Wnts, which are produced by the hair follicle stem cells themselves, and BMP inhibitors, produced by the underlying green cell, basically a pocket of specialized mesenchymal cells, called dermal papillae cells, these are the proactivating signals that are necessary to take the stem cells out of their quiescent state and coax them to make hair. So, when the threshold levels of activating signals overcome the inhibitory BMP signal, then the stem cells are basically activated. They start to make those short-lived progeny. And now the short-lived progeny may get a new signal, this one called sonic hedgehog. Sonic hedgehog then acts in two ways, which we learned from uh, conditional knockout uh, of both the receptor and the ligand. What we learned is that sonic hedgehog first acts to stimulate the specialized mesenchymal cells, the dermal papillae cells, to produce more BMP inhibitors and also proactivating FGFs. Then, several days later, sonic hedgehog acts on the quiescent stem cells, those purple cells, to be able to restock the stem cells utilized in the course of tissue regeneration, but also to produce the shaft that then (coughs) grows downward, pushing the signaling center away from the stem cell niche, and now the stem cells return to quiescence, But the short-lived progeny produce hair and the channel that the hair follicle sits in. And so, in this way, we understand very well about how the hair cycle works, because once the hair cycle is begun and gets going, it's essentially the short-lived progenitors that then do the bulk of making tissue, in this case, the hair and its channel. So, the short-lived progenitors are short-lived. Eventually, they lose their proliferative capacity and undergo apoptosis and differentiation, and now the system returns back to normal again to reset the hair cycle. So, what does it take to make a hair follicle? I talked about the importance of the wind signal, but many years ago, my laboratory activated the Wnt signal at a time we didn't even know it was a Wnt signal. We activated its interacting partner, known as beta-catenin. And when we activated beta-catenin in the mouse skin, what we got is the super furry mouse relative to its brother next to it. These mice ended up uh, producing far more hair follicles than normal. Initially, we were very excited by that. But the downside of this is is that those mice develop tumors over time, obviously not yet ready for prime time. But it told us a very important thing, and that is that Wnt signaling is important in dictating these unspecified progenitors to make a hair follicle, not to make epidermis. So, when taken from their niche and cultured, the green stem cells that you see here of the hair follicle turn out to acquire plasticity. We can culture these stem cells much the same way that Howard Green cultured epidermal stem cells many years ago. And when we culture those cells, we can take a colony or a clone derived from one of the single stem cells, and we can engraft it onto a mouse that doesn't have hair. And those mice now can produce hair. They also produce epidermis and sebaceous glands. And that's something that they normally don't do. Normally, they just make hair. They will, however, make epidermis and sebaceous glands when the skin is wounded and when the epidermis and the sebaceous glands are missing. So, the stem cells receive signals, in this case, case wound signals, that stimulate those stem cells to be able to make hair but also to be able to make epidermis and sebaceous glands, to replenish the tissues that were missing as a consequence of the wound. And when you take the stem cells out of context, out of the hair follicle niche, and you put them into culture, now the stem cells kind of forget what they were supposed to do when they're grafted back onto the skin, and now they basically act like they're in a wound state uh, and effectively will also make epidermis and sebaceous glands. We call this phenomenon stem cell plasticity, and it's something that we see in a variety of different stem cell... uh, stem cells uh, from tissues. It's a phenomenon that basically allows a tissue to receive, essentially, a, a danger call in a wound that tells the stem cells nearby to be able to repair and replenish the tissue uh, at all costs and as fast as possible. So, it's always the closest stem cells, then, to the wound that can repair it. Unfortunately, these stem cells will not automatically make uh, neurons or make other tissues of our body uh, without some manipulation. But these stem cells will, however, uh, naturally make not only hair follicles, but also epidermis and sebaceous glands. So, we've studied these stem cells over the course of many years now. And we know that these stem cells uh, are defined by their transcriptional profile. Effectively, the gene expression pattern that these stem cells make. And we know a good deal about this. We know that there are the transcription factors in purple. Uh, a variety of different transcription factors that are made by these hair follicle stem cells and not by other uh, stem cells, at least as a cohort. We know that there are some factors, like LGR5, which are made by a number of different stem cells, intestinal epithelial stem cells, uh, hair follicle stem cells, and many other types of stem cells. We know that integrins are a characteristic of many different types of stem cells, and they're... expressed at very high levels in the hair follicle stem cells. And then for a quiescent stem cell, the niche signals basically uh, produce a gene expression profile by the stem cells that reflect reduced levels of wind signaling and reduced levels of sonic hedgehog signaling. Those are the proactivating cues for the stem cells, whereas BMP signals and FGF18 signals the inhibitory cues that tell those stem cells to remain in quiescence, those signals are upregulated. And then differentiation, whether it be differentiation for the epidermis, or the sebaceous gland, or the hair follicle, all of those programs are suppressed by the stem cells. So, their transcriptional program reflects the behavior of these stem cells. We characterized the transcriptional program by taking the stem cells directly out of the tissue, using fluorescence-activated cell sorting to purify those cells, and basically taking those RNAs and directly profiling them. We also used a technology known as conditional knockout technology to be able to excise the transcription factors from uh, the skin of the animal. When we excise TCF3 and TCF4, these are DNA binding proteins which can also bind beta-catenin, which is a downstream Wnt effector, and we found that the loss of TCF3 and 4 basically no longer the stem cells can no longer maintain their quiet, their uh, their uh, their activity. We learned that the loss of LHX2 is required for maintaining the stem cells, and similarly, the loss of Sox9 required for maintaining the stem cells. Surprisingly, when we knocked out beta-catenin, what we found is no hair follicles made. So, with no Wnt signaling, there were no hair follicles made. Um, Interestingly, when we knocked out TCF3 and 4, even though it was necessary to make a hair follicle, what we found... and maintain the hair follicle stem cells, what we found is a burst of hair growth. So, in this way, we learned that TCF3 and 4 antagonize what Wnt signaling can do. And that keeps the stem cells in quiescence, because Wnt is typically a proliferation-associated factor. LHX2, in the absence, basically produces where the stem cell niche was, now a niche full of sebaceous gland. So, LHX2 is necessary to repress the differentiation program of the sebaceous gland while the stem cells are stem cells in their native niche. Sox-9 represses the epidermal stem cell uh, differentiation program. And without Sox-9, the hair follicle stem cell niche turns into an epidermal cyst. So, we understand how these different factors are working and how these different transcription factors... what they're necessary for. So, let's put this all together now, and I'll give you one example. And that is from BMP signaling, which I told you is important to control stem cell quiescence. So, we've learned for the course of our studies that the BMP interacting with the BMP receptor on the stem cells uh, is sufficient to activate the canonical... A transcription factor called phosphoSMAD1, along with phospho along with SMAD4, which then control downstream a group of transcription factors that I've shown you here. Together, these factors are necessary to control the quiescence of the stem cells. So we then looked at what happens in an aging mouse. What we found was that in the first hair cycle of the mouse. That happens relatively quickly. Only a couple days separates the time at which one hair follicle has completed its cycle and the next hair cycle begins. But now, as the animals get older, there's longer and longer times between when our hairs grow, or when the animal's hair grows, and when the hair, basically, when the stem cells sit in quiescence. They spend far longer sitting in quiescence than they do in the younger mice. And when we traced this, what we found is that the dermis and the old fat, or the old adipose tissue of these older mice, turned out to produce very high levels of BMP. And that's what maintained these stem cells in their quiescent state. We could treat the... the old mice with a drug called VIVIT, which is an inhibitor of NFATC1, one of the transcription factors downstream of the BMP signal, and we could regrow... reactivate those dormant hair follicle stem cells in order to make a new round of hair growth. And so, at this point in time in our studies, what we learned is that actually the stem cell numbers still remain high in the older animal, but it's their activity that wanes with age. So, hair graying is also a phenomenon that... uh, that happens with age. And in this study, what uh, others, uh, Mayumi Ito and her coworkers learned was that the melanocyte stem cells and the hair follicle stem cells reside in the same niche, and they respond to similar signals. And this was also the work of Emi Nishimura and uh, uh, and her coworkers in Japan. And so, hair follicle and melanocyte stem cells are hanging out in the same niche, they respond to the same signals. And the importance of that is that the hair follicle stem cells and melanocyte stem cells will get activated at the same time, they'll differentiate, so that the melanocyte cells will now begin producing pigment, and the hair follicle cells will begin producing hair. And at that time, the differentiated melanocytes can provide that pigment to the differentiating hair cells. And that's what gives our hair its color. And so, when the stem cells of the hair follicle are unable to be able to produce hair, so too, uh, typically, the melanocyte stem cells uh, end up being unable to be activated because they reside in the same niche. So one of my graduate students, Kenneth Lay, had the remarkable, brilliant idea that perhaps if he simply uh, uh, deleted these transcription factors that are important in controlling quiescence downstream of the BMP pathway, that he might be able to accelerate the differences then that exist between uh, the younger mice and the older mice with regards to the length of their hair cycle. Could he reduce? the length of time that stem cells spend in quiescence. And the answer to that experiment was quite remarkable. And in fact, now, the mice just kept on cranking out hair. Their stem cells were almost constantly activated. A new hair would grow, the process would go through its cycle, and then the cycle would reinitiate again, over and over and over again. So, this was pretty exciting for us. And we began to wonder whether BMP inhibition could be the fountain of youth for endless hair growth. Well, unfortunately, in science, things aren't always so simple. And what happened was that the animals precociously became gray sooner than did their counterparts. And it turned out that when the transcription factor was mutated and lacking, while the hairs kept on being cranked out, Eventually, the number of stem cells declined, and uh, that then led to a precocious graying and a precocious uh, thinning of the hair. So, we're not yet there, but we have some predictions. And the predictions might be that the key to the fountain of youth with regards to hair growth is a well-balanced BMP. Clearly, by cranking out and activating those stem cells continuously was deleterious for uh, the mouse's ability to produce hair endlessly, but perhaps with a balance tempering those numbers of uh, hair cycles, one might be able to achieve the goal of being able to extend the ability of time that individuals could grow their hair. So Bmp also plays an important role in development in development of the skin, and here. We were fascinated by the fact that the dermis instructs the fate of what the epidermal bud would do. So, uh, in embryonic development, the skin begins as that single layer of epithelium, and epidermal buds begin to appear. And those buds can become a mammary gland. They can become a hair bud. They can become uh, a sweat gland bud. It's depending upon what the dermis is uh, instructing them to do. And so, regionally, we end up getting uh, these different uh, appendages of the epithelium uh, generated as a consequence of the different types of mesenchyme, or the dermis, that we have. It turns out that in most mammals, there's a BMP signal called BMP5, which is regionally spiking only in the paw skin of the animals. And so what happens is that most of the body region of the animals has hair, And there's very few sweat glands. There's only sweat glands, or eccrine sweat glands, on their paws. And eccrine sweat glands are what allows us... what allows our body to thermoregulate. It's what allows us to go out there and run a marathon as we uh, sweat three liters of sweat in so doing. But most mammals can't do that, and they can't do it, because they have fur instead of sweat glands over their body surface. And so... Uh, We began to study this process, and as we discovered, the BMP5 regionally spikes in the paw dermis. It doesn't spike in the body dermis, and therefore, the animals get hair exclusively. But then, when we looked at human embryonic development, what we discovered is that BMP5 seems to be deregulated in a different way in humans than it is even in higher primates. And in this case, BMP5 spikes broadly and temporally in the body dermis. So that the very first few waves of epidermal bud development are forming hair in humans. But then that last wave, when BMP5 spikes over the body, basically we end up getting hair... uh, getting sweat glands over our body. And that's what gives us those wonderful properties to be able to uh, run marathons and, uh, and to be able to uh, sweat and survive in extreme climates relative to... Uh, to other... Uh, other animals. So, what else can we do with these adult skin cells? Well, in part one of my discussion, I already told you about the ability to change the uh, behavior of an adult skin cell and uh, turn it into an induced pluripotent stem cell by the uh, activity of four transcription factors that are produced by or expressed by embryonic stem cells. that was a remarkable change and a remarkable advance, because it allowed us now to be able to uh, culture neurons, pancreatic beta cells, heart cells, etc., in vitro, starting with skin cells. So, can we reprogram in smaller steps? Well, our ability to be able to culture, for instance, hair follicle stem cells, we now know that if we simply switch off LHX2, we can make sebocytes in culture. If we switch off the uh, transcription factor SOX9, we can make epidermis rather than hair. And if we switch off the regulatory factors for NFATC1 or FOXC1, we can basically halt tissue uh, we can, if we switch them on, we can halt tissue regeneration. If we switch them off, we can favor hair hair follicle tissue regeneration and hair regeneration. And finally, uh, an interesting aspect is that if we simply give the hair follicle stem cell a transcriptional regulatory factor called PAX, a particular type of the PAX transcription factor, then we can instruct hair follicle stem cells to make to become corneal stem cells. And when you think about cases where patients have both eyes that are blinded by some industrial burn, then this type of potential reprogramming in smaller steps might offer the potential for future therapy. So, I'd like to switch now to a uh, problem of what do I mean by switching on genes and switching off genes. And two of my graduate students, Renee Adam and Hansel Young, had the interest of being able to examine the uh, chromatin landscape, the gene expression landscape of the... uh, of the hair follicle stem cells. And what they learned from that is that there are about 350 genes that are expressed by the hair follicle stem cells that are regulated by very large enhancers... Uh, Rick Young has coined them super-enhancers, that bind all of the different transcription factors, as we showed, that are expressed by the hair follicle stem cells. So, uh, TCF3, TCF4, we talked about SOX9, we talked about LHX2, and c one And they all bind to relatively short stretches of DNA that are contained within these large super-enhancers. So, those short short stretches of DNA seem to have uh, the... uh, not only the binding of all these transcription factors, but they also have the uh, sequence motifs to which those transcription factors bind. So, these genes turn out to be also the genes that are most important in maintaining the hair follicle stem cells in their quiescent, undifferentiated state. If we take a look at a handful of the 350 genes, then, that are these special genes regulated by super-enhancers, what we find is that they include the SOX9 gene, the LHX2 gene, the NFATC1 gene, and uh, DNA... uh, the BMP downstream gene transcription factor activators. They also include the BMP inhibitor and the BMP receptor. They include a Wnt inhibitor, DKK3, and the Wnt receptor, or Frizzled. They also include the integrin genes that I uh, emphasized as being important for maintaining hair follicle stem cells. Effectively, this short list of super-enhancer regulated genes contains all of the critical information that is necessary for these genes to be able to essentially be a, a hair follicle stem cell. I also point out that many of the genes on this list have already been associated with human genetic disorders of the hair and the skin. So, what I've told you is that there's a master group of transcription factors for the skin stem cells, but it also turns out that there's a master group of transcription factors for every uh, stem cell type, and they're different for different stem cell types. So, the first Uh, studies that were done were on embryonic stem cells. And Rick Young uh, and his co-workers showed that the super enhancers are regulated by the transcription factors that are necessary to maintain embryonic stem cells. What I've just showed you is that in an adult tissue stem cell, the hair follicle stem cell, that there's a different cohort of transcription factors that are necessary to maintain these stem cells and being hair follicle stem cells. So, we're starting to dig deeper into understanding what are the differences in embryonic versus adult stem cells. Another interesting aspect is that all of these transcription factors are only expressed as a cohort in hair follicle stem cells. So, you might see TCF3, for instance, in brain stem cells. You'll see TCF4 in intestinal stem cells, LHX2 in hematopoietic stem cells, SOX9 in bone stem cells, But the only place you see them all together, at one place in time, are the hair follicle stem cells. And it turns out that we can take advantage of that. We can uh, take one of these elements uh, that uh, contain the binding sites for all of these different transcription factors, and we can use that to drive the expression of a fluorescent green protein in mice. And now, the fluorescent green protein is only expressed by the hair follicle stem cells far more specificity than we've ever achieved simply by taking a chunk of chromatin or promoter region and enhancer region and using that to drive expression in, uh, in mice. So, this type of information is really important for researchers to be able to dig deeper into the biology of stem cells, in this case, the hair follicle stem cells. We also are learning that stem cells change their gene expression program outside of their niche. I already showed you that a stem cell outside of its niche, when grafted back onto the... uh, to an animal, can generate hair follicles, epidermis, and sebaceous glands. But now, if we take a wound-induced enhancer, if we characterize the chromatin state of the stem cell while it's in the act of repairing a wound, and now identify those regulatory elements and use those to drive EGFP in a a mouse. Now what we find is that in the unwounded skin, there's no activity. And now we wound the skin, and the activity turns on. So, these regulatory elements contain the information necessary to not only maintain the stem cell, but in this case, to tell the stem cell what to do and to change its program of gene expression if it's going to repair a wound, versus if it's just going to replace a cell that is dying in the tissue. So, we're also looking at how skin inflammation elicits changes in gene expression in epidermal stem cells. So, when uh, stem cells receive an inflammatory assault, how do they respond? And what we learned from our studies is that they respond, and they activate new genes. And by taking the regulatory elements from those genes, we can use those to drive the expression of, in this case, a reporter GFP gene. So, here we've generated mice uh, that express uh, these particular reporter elements, but they only do so when the skin has been subjected to inflammation. So, in the naive skin, we see no expression, Of the EGFP protein in the presence of inflammation. If we give the skin an inflammatory assault, now we see the activation of these enhancer elements. So we call these elements inflammation sensors. And what we found is that there are about 2,000 inflammation sensing chromatin domains that remain open in skin stem cells long after the inflammation has resolved. These sensors rapidly then become activated again with... and activate their associated genes when the skin sees inflammation again. that's a remarkable property because, basically, this confers to the epidermal stem cells a memory, an inflammatory memory, that it's seen the inflammation before. And even though the gene expression program is normal in... uh, after the inflammation has resolved... There's these hidden memory open chromatin domains that basically allow the genes to be poised so that the genes can now be activated again and activated quicker the next time inflammation occurs. And why do we think that that's important or relevant? Skin inflammation elicits marks on epidermal stem cell chromatin. Remember that the epidermal stem cells are there for the long haul. They see the inflammation they remain, in uh, their active as stem cells long after the inflammation has resolved. But they have that memory that they've seen the inflammation before. That em- memory resides in the virtue of epigenetic marks. And here are some examples. There are columns now of the epigenetic marks that are shown. Um, in this case, in control chromatin, shown in gray, there's no epigenetic marks now there's inflammation, the skin experiences inflammation, and we see two epigenetic marks appear here in this gene on the right. And now, 30 days later, what we find is those epigenetic marks are still there. And even six months later, there's still traces of those epigenetic marks residing within these... uh, this chromatin. So, the epidermal stem cells have a memory harbored in chromatin that they've seen the inflammation before. And what's the importance of that? Well, let's think about psoriasis or atopic dermatitis or contact dermatitis infections. The infections typically come and go. And when they come back again, they typically come back to the same places. We're now starting to understand why that is. Because, effectively, the epidermal stem cells have a memory. that They've seen the inflammation before, so that if they see it again, they respond faster the next time. So, what I've told you is that adult stem cells replenish dying cells of a, of a tissue, and that they repair wounds. I've told you that they reside in niches whose crosstalk dictates their behavior. I've told you that key stem cell genes are regulated by super enhancers that bind stem cell transcription factors as well as transcription factors that are induced by the niche microenvironment. For inflama- inflammation, for instance, it might be uh, a phosphorylated active version of STAT3 along with the epidermal stem cell factors. I've also told you that trained immunity, the memory, of inflammation, is not a phenomenon that's restricted to the immune system, but occurs in epidermal, and we think likely other epithelial stem cells that bear the brunt of inflammation. Inflammatory bowel disease, for for instance, or certain types of lung inflammation. Somehow the tissue remembers that it's seen the inflammation before. So, for immune cells, trained immunity enhances the ability of the immune cells to eliminate the infection, if they see it again. For epidermal stem cells, trained immunity enhances their ability to restore the skin barrier when breached and to aid in recruiting the immune system. And remember that the most important thing that the skin epithelium does is basically to produce that barrier that keeps harmful microbes out and essential bodily fluids in. And whether we're wounding the skin or whether we end up with a hyper... hyper hyper-inflammatory response, the barrier is at risk. And the epithelium... the epidermal stem cells respond by trying to repair that barrier as fast as they can, sometimes not very effective at doing it. And that then can lead to chronic wound healing or chronic inflammation. And those are obviously uh, areas that we'd like to be able to adapt our understanding for to make progress in treating those diseases in the future.